Julie Rose, and this is Top of Mind. I have been a radio journalist for two decades, but a few years ago, I found myself avoiding the news for long stretches because of how depressing and divisive it all seems. I still wanted to be informed and engaged on important issues, though, and I figured I couldn't be alone in that. So we created this podcast. Each week, we tackle one tough topic in a way that will challenge you, help you feel more empathy, and empower you to become a better citizen, a kinder neighbor, and a more effective advocate. Today, why do Americans care so much about our founding story? I think that America was founded by colonizers. Amerigo Vespucci. Christopher Columbus. Who were very motivated by greed and by racism. Pilgrims looking for religious freedom founded America. The founding fathers were inspired men. America was built on slavery. And then there are the unrecognized contributions of the Native Americans. We struggle to agree on even the most basic parts of our founding story. Was it divine intervention? A scheme to profit off slavery? Or simply the pursuit of freedom? Ask a dozen people and you will get a dozen different answers, like we did when we put out the call on social media recently. And I don't know about you, but I am a little surprised at how heated this debate has become. The protests and punditry and public school battles over what version of America to teach the kids. Then again, how we feel about America also feels personal. I'm proud to be an American because there are more opportunities to succeed here than any other country in the world. We have a lot of problems, but there are also lots of people who are so motivated to solve them. Most days, I am not proud to be an American. This season on Top of Mind, we are assessing assumptions. And a common thread in this debate is an assumption that only one story can be right. And it's the version that most aligns with our own feelings about America. But is simplicity necessary? Can a founding story be complicated and contradictory and still do its job? Origin stories have been powerful tools for creating and sustaining nations throughout time. But it is hard to find a better example of this than ancient Rome. So we called Peter Meinick, a professor of classics in the modern world at New York University, to help us grasp the role of founding myths. And it turns out Rome's origin story also inspired America's founding fathers in really interesting ways. We'll get to that. But first, Rome. Basically, the story is that there's these two twin babies who are cast into the River Tiber from a city called Alba Longa in order to be got rid of by an uncle who's worried that they're going to overthrow him. The twins are Romulus and Remus. Their father is Mars, the Roman god of war, and their mother is the daughter of Numitor, the deposed king. So the overthrower, their uncle Amulius, obviously sees the twins as a threat to the throne he's stolen. Right, so he doesn't want to kill them because that would be an act of impiety, bloodshed against kin. So what do you do? You put them in a basket, you put them in the river Tiber, and you know, that's the end of them. The god of the river Tiber sort of takes pity on these kids and kind of guides this foundling basket to the shores of what will eventually become Rome. And on the, on the banks of the river, the two young babies, Romulus and Remus, are discovered by a, a she-wolf, the famous she-wolf, who takes them to her cave, uh, the Lupercal, and basically famously kind of suckles Romulus and Remus as, as sort of wolf boys. Later, the twins are taken in by a shepherd and his wife. And these two boys grow up and attract other kind of lost wolf boys to their little tribe living in, you know, the woods around the River Tiber. And they become brigands, basically, and kind of rip people off trying to cross the River Tiber. News of this gets back to the king, their uncle Amulius. He sends his men to capture them, unaware that these boys are the same babies he tossed in the river all those years ago. And then to cut a long story short, their identity is basically revealed, and then they overthrow Amulius in order to give the kingdom back to Numitor. With their grandfather back on the throne in Alba Longa, the twins decide to found their own city. So they go back to the Lupercal, and they decide to, to found Rome on this site. The brothers start to fight. They fight over where they're going to locate the walls or if they're even going to have walls. And Romulus, in a fit of anger, kills his brother Remus, who's then kind of buried in the uh, 
in the walls of Rome. Romulus becomes the first king of Rome until his transfiguration into uh, the sort of Roman, uh, a Roman version of the god Mars or the son of Mars, and he kind of transcends up to heaven. And that, that's really the basic story. Now, Romulus probably wasn't a real person, but the story had real power at a time when Rome was nothing more than a collection of small Latin villages with different ethnicities and languages surrounded by much more powerful groups. Rome finds itself pretty much under attack quite early on and needs to defend itself. Um, And you've got all these sort of forces acting upon them. Greeks, Carthaginians, other Italian tribes, all vying for land and property. And so Rome finds itself in a position as being this kind of upstart state that needs to kind of develop a way of recruiting a sizable military force in order to kind of beat off these invaders. You've, you've got to really kind of get everybody motivated in a kind of national identity. So the Romulus and Remus Smith is kind of part of that, I think. It's an interesting story, right, because he kills his brother. Uh, in a fit of anger. So there's a complexity to the story, right? And I think it's key that it's about the walls of Rome, right? That Romulus is like, we have to have these walls, we have to establish them. And Remus doesn't understand that. And I think what's baked in there is this kind of certainty of what it takes to be a Roman, which is this duty to kind of protect the city and protect the state and protect the idea of Rome. And I think ultimately that's what enables Roman legionaries who are not even Roman, most of the Roman army are not from Rome, right? They're from Spain, from Gaul, from Germany, you know, from Africa. But yet they believe in this idea of Rome. Most Roman legionaries never even went to Rome or saw Rome. So you had their, their empire being protected by these incredible soldiers with this powerful idea of Rome who'd never actually been there. So I think the story contains this idea of kind of Roman defense and what the Romans are prepared to do collectively to uphold that idea. It's powerful. So to be a Roman means to be loyal and fierce and also innovative, says Meinick. The key thing about the Romulus story is it's a werewolf myth, right? Which is they're wolf boys. And wolf boys are young adolescent males that live beyond the confines of society. And there's a sort of an attractiveness there. That it's like the rock and roll of kind of mythology, right? And and the Romans saw themselves as these kind of renegade upstarts who would innovate and create and not follow anybody, not dance to anybody's tune. And I think the myth propagated this idea, right, is that this is how we kind of adapt and survive. You think about Roman engineering, you think about, you know, Rome managed to police their empire with an army smaller than the NYPD. I mean, think about that, right? I mean, that is amazing. So they're really policing their empire through through ideas and culture. And I think the myth of Romulus and Remus is a very powerful idea about, well, there might be less of us, but we will out-innovate you, we will out-create you, we will out-weight you, we will out-siege-engine you, we will use technology, whatever it takes. But then what they did is, after being very, very violent conquerors, they then allowed you to become Roman too. You could become a citizen of Rome. You could join the Pax Romana. But founding stories always face pressure as nations grow and struggle with threats of war and disease and natural disasters. But you see, Rome kind of keeps coming back from the brink by re-embracing its older traditions. You see later even emperors calling themselves Romulus, right? Trying to take on that title and reinvest people in this kind of idea of a national myth. And it's quite successful. I mean, Rome is able to continue uh, probably for longer than a lot of cultures might have continued facing that kind of crisis. Um, But yes, I think what happens is as the empire gets very large and uh, the the sort of center starts to not hold anymore, I think this myth loses its power. People start to turn to other cults and other religions. You you know, you start to see um, the mythic structure breaking down. And of course, you know, by the 4th century, Rome was converted to Christianity, so it has no interest in propagating this, this foundation myth. And I think it becomes quite difficult for Rome as an idea to actually kind of continue. And I think it's impossible to really understand the system that we've got, that we live by, without understanding what the Romans did. He means we Americans. And you've probably seen by now that viral meme going around about how surprisingly often American men think about the Roman Empire, right? Right. Well, America's founding fathers would have won that contest. 
So all, all the founders had classical education. Uh, it's one, one thing that bound them together. And so, yeah, America was really created as a new Rome with a republic and a senate, right? I read somewhere there was even a proposal, I don't think it made it to the fore, that, that the first uh, American senate should wear togas, which I would love to see. I'd love to see Mitch McConnell in a toga, right? That'd be very <laughs> funny. But if you go to Washington and, and you see all these Roman symbols, right, the American eagle is in effect the kind of eagle of Jupiter, right? We see these symbols of Roman power, column buildings. We we, we build our official buildings like this. Um, the idea of the Republic was a, a, a viable force that could overthrow a king. And we see this in America, right, where it's like, how do we get rid of King George? Well, the Romans did it. They kicked out their kings. So, so we create a Republic. So in many ways... One could argue that America is a new Rome, right? For better or for worse. Yeah. George Washington was a figurative descendant of Romulus then, I guess, for the uh, for the Americans. Yeah, very much so. And, and look at George Washington, right? The first great American who was an officer in the British Army and his mother and father were, were English, right? And yet in one generation, you create this new thing called an American right? So you have to create a founding myth to do that. So pinning it on the Roman founding myth was a really, really smart thing to do because it's uh, it's very pervasive. Peter Meinick is a professor of classics in the modern world at New York University. Now, what happens when the heroes of your founding story die? At a point when the people who had fought the American Revolution were passing from the stage, they needed a real answer to okay, who are we? What does it mean to be an American or a citizen of the United States? And there was a growing realization if they didn't come up with a solution that the union would fall apart. With survival on the line, the search for America's founding story was just beginning. I'm Julie Rose. This is Top of Mind. Coming up with a narrative to unite the American colonies was never going to be easy. They didn't see eye to eye, and they didn't expect to be part of a continent-spanning country together. And the differences between them were profound. I'm Colin Woodard. I'm the author of Union, The Struggle to Forge the Story of United States Nationhood. And he's director of the Nationhood Lab at Salve Regina University, which is out to find a modern narrative that can bind us together as Americans today. Having a coherent story about what a nation is or why we belong to it or why we should give it greater loyalty or feel that we belong to it more than other nations is really essential. Every nation needs one, whether it's Germany or Japan or China or ourselves. But in our case, it's a particularly complicated undertaking and always has been. You know, we had these separate colonial projects that formed on the eastern and southwestern rims of what's now the United States. They were founded in different time periods by people from different parts of the British Isles or France or the Netherlands or Spain and uh, had different religious backgrounds and ethnographic backgrounds and were trying to build very different societies with different economic models. Um, for instance, the Puritans who came to early New England, here's a group of people who thought themselves to be in a covenanted relationship with God, like the Old Testament Hebrews, and that they had been chosen to do certain things in the world, to, to go to the New World in an errand in the wilderness and put a light on a hill and, you know, and that they would be judged as a group as to whether they succeeded or failed. So there was this enormous emphasis on being able to um, make sure that everybody was following the program. And so that's a very different background than, say, the English people who came and dominated the Chesapeake country around the same time. That was a project, um, you know, set up also in the early 1600s by the sort of Lord Granthams and Downton Abbeys of their age. These were the ones that, that the younger sons who were not going to inherit the estate themselves. But with the discovery of the new world, it was possible to imagine creating your own new manor estate. That's how you could end up with a society of people like Jefferson and Washington and Madison, you know, enlightened gentlemen writing about natural rights philosophy while sitting on their slaveholding plantations. There, there was a project in, you know, the Spanish project in the Southwest and the, a uh, West Indies style uh, English 
slave plantation society that was transplanted to the Deep South in the uh, late part of the 17th century. There were the Scots-Irish into the backcountry and so on. So what I'm saying is to have these very different societies who wound up during the revolution together by, by sort of an accident of history, and they had a common threat and they grouped together to fend off the, the British and uh, they won and there they were in something called the United States. Nobody knew exactly what that meant. You know, was it an EU-like trade federation or a NATO-like alliance or a nation-state-in-waiting? So was there actually a narrative? Um, I mean, I guess they didn't have a narrative. They had a common enemy initially in England that brings them together to fight. Once they've won the Revolutionary War, does that then become their narrative? That was the ad hoc attempt anyway. Exactly what you say. For about a generation, the attempt was to say, hey, we may not have anything in common, but we beat the British. Go us. And, you know, they made George Washington and his... Um, cohort of uh, wartime heroes into sort of demigods. They were the heroes, the Mount Olympus of our struggle, and hopefully some sort of model for a um, a, a Republican-American government. But that idea that, hey, we won a war, isn't that great, isn't enough to hold the country together if it has all these other tensions going on. And by the 1820s or so, at a point when the people who had fought the American Revolution were passing from the stage, it no longer had enough resonance. It was becoming clear that the tensions over and between slavery and the natural rights propositions in the Declaration were not going to get resolved easily. And that was already starting to pull the country apart. So they they needed a real answer to okay, who are we? What does it mean? You know you know what it means to be a Massachusettsian or a Virginian or a South Carolinian. What does it mean to be an American or a citizen of the United States? By the 1830s, the problems could no longer be contained. And there was a growing realization uh, uh, among thinkers, but political leaders and, and everyone else that if they didn't come up with a solution, that the union would fall apart. And Colin Woodard, as you tell in your book, Union, uh, three men step in to fill this void at this particular point, each of them with a different take. They are George Bancroft, Frederick Douglass, and William Gilmore Sims. Who was George Bancroft and what was his idea of what America was and what it meant to be the United States? George Bancroft was the first person to really package a, um, a draft of what we were supposed to be and successfully put it out before Americans, broadly speaking. And he was a Yankee New Englander through and through and would rise to be you know, the most famous and prominent American historian of the entire 19th century. And he said, you know, that America is tasked tasked with promoting human freedom and the ideals in the Declaration of Independence. You know, it was a, was a civic national idea that we may not share an ethnicity or a religion or a history, but we share those ideals. What makes us Americans is our commitment to the, the, the natural right of humans to be free, to pursue their happiness, to have representative self-government and so on. He tied it together though with a belief a very post-Puritan Yankee belief that um, God had tasked Americans with this, that we were chosen to do this, to carry the mantle and baton of freedom across the continent and to the rest of the world, which led very quickly to it being used in ideas of manifest destiny and the like. And so did he also believe that God had um, destined the indigenous peoples that had been on the continent prior to be killed? And like was that like how did how did all of that fit in to his to this narrative he was building? Like a lot of the 19th century writers and thinkers, he managed to sort of gloss over that. They just sort of faded away. They were uh, sort of like um, temporary placeholders waiting for God's chosen people to arrive, and that they would sort of um, assimilate or just simply fade away uh, off the stage of history. And that seemed to be the general idea, not given much thought in general. And and he also is not giving a lot of thought to what slavery was doing to the people who were enslaved. Well, right. I mean, if the United States is the standard bearer, you know, um, appointed by God to carry forth the standard of equality and liberty and self-government, what do you do with slavery? And that's one of the uh, many quirks and deficiencies of Bancroft as a person. He uh, believed that because 
um, Providence had chosen us, that we just needed to sit back and wait. And he uh, did so in his history and reassured everybody that slavery would just naturally fall by the wayside. You know, it was an anachronism that would work itself out, um, that we didn't need to worry about it, just, you know, stay the course and uh, move forward and, and history will guide us towards uh, promoting and bringing freedom to people everywhere. Um, of course, that wasn't true at all. And if he had spent any time in the South and among Southerners, he probably would have realized that earlier than he did. And so he didn't quite understand that large parts of the country didn't share his Yankee New England assumptions. Yeah, so let's fold that into the story. First of all, um, was Bancroft's national narrative well-received, at least outside of the South? <laughs> well, that's the amazing thing, right? You, you have this first packaging of the of the good version or the better version of our narrative, a, a one about ideals. And it, the moment it is put out, it, it is um, attacked vehemently uh, in the South, especially in the deep South and Tidewater, especially around a circle of Southern intellectuals centered on the uh, Charleston intellectual and novelist William Gilmore Sims. And Sims would quickly be the anti-Bancroft who would rise up, take the cudgel, and, and fight him in all of the media, and strenuously argued for the proposition that Jefferson was completely wrong when he wrote those words in the Declaration. He said that humans are obviously not equal, and that the only people who could possibly have the genius to realize the promises of Republican self-government in the Declaration were the allegedly superior Anglo-Saxon race, full stop, and that everyone else was, um, you know, slavery and subjugation were their natural lot and that the United States was a collection of Anglo-Saxon ethnostates. That's what made them special. And he strenuously argued for that, an ethno-national vision of the country. And you might ask, how can you roll that together with being a democratic republic? And the answer is, um, it, it's a, a, a classical republican vision, as in the classical republics of antiquity, ancient Greece and ancient Rome, which were slaveholding states, where a tiny minority had the the privilege or the liberty to practice democracy and subjugation and slavery with a natural lot of the many. And that's the model that the, the deep Southerners and later the Confederates were using in their defense of the views that um, cannot be reconciled with the natural rights tradition. And, and Sims was then entirely dismissive of the Declaration of Independence that was wrongheaded. But the Constitution, though, was maybe more palatable to his vision because it, it does allow for famously the uh, continuation of slavery. So you've kind of got this battle of these two founding documents, like Sims is, is, says, hey, it's the Constitution that matters. And you've got uh, Bancroft who says, no, 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 it's, it's the Declaration of Independence that is, you know, most of all the thing that, that, that defines us. Yeah, there's an enormous tension and always has been between the ideals in the Declaration and the 1787 Constitution. I mean, the the Declaration is our opening statement as a people, our sort of mission statement and a, a, a set of sort of revolutionary propositions about who we are. The Constitution was the devil's bargain that had to be created to hold the Federation together, essentially to hold the South to the North. And all kinds of concessions inconsistent with the Declaration were made then. But it shouldn't be that surprising because the Declaration, after those words were written, those words were largely ignored for decades. You know, nobody really talked about them until Bancroft dredged them up again. Sims explicitly and his um, intellectual allies explicitly said that Jefferson was wrong and the Declaration was, was complete hooey and that everyone should ignore that. And Frederick Douglass famous abolitionist contemporary of these two men. What was the story that he was trying to put forth for the United States? Douglas is sort of the pivotal figure in the creation of our national story because you had those, you know, Bancroft and Sims's visions battling it out. And here comes um, this uh, person who had escaped slavery personally, and um, he has this incredible story to tell, a firsthand story of the depravity that slavery causes both to enslaved and enslavers. And he has this staggering oratorical ability, and then it turns out writing ability, which was amazing because he had to learn to read and write in secret. 
And he's plucked up by the abolitionists and sent out as their star public speaker at a time when public speaking was everything. And he was traveling all over the country and later across the Atlantic world, giving speeches that essentially said, the ideals in the Declaration are what this country is about. They are excellent ideals. You ought to try them, Americans. You're betraying them now. Um, you need to fight for these things. And right now, the country is, you know, kind of making mockery of it all. His essential argument was to white Northerners to stand up for those ideals and rally around them. And that corrective, which is essentially, you know, it's it's the American story ever since. Yes, these are amazing ideals. We haven't achieved them. And we need to try to work, you know, as Americans and as humans to make this vision possible. That's the contribution that Douglas made. And he was such an important thought leader, I guess you could say, or media superstar, uh, that he was able to bring that message during the Civil War to President Lincoln himself. You know, Douglas traveled at great risk to D.C., which was surrounded on three sides by Confederate troops, uh, to help try to convince Lincoln to do something about this. And a lot of that pushing happened to get Lincoln to the point where he gives the Gettysburg Address, which is the first time that an American president has linked our country's purpose with the ideals in the Declaration. That's the amazing moment of it. That all of this bloodshed in the Civil War that was then raging on the battlefield in Gettysburg, you know, the, the, the bodies still in the, in the ground around him when he spoke, that all of this death and destruction is for this goal. But that started a tradition, you know, a, a more accurate way of thinking about our country, where we are at vis-a-vis our ideals. And Douglas was the, the sort of powerful force that did that. And what happens to sort of where does the nation's mind move? What, what narrative does the country start to embrace most after the Civil War, after Abraham Lincoln is assassinated? Yeah, that's the great tragedy is that um, the, the South and that ethno-national vision lost the war but they really did end up winning the peace. Um, there was an occupation of the South by Union armies and an effort to uh, create public school systems where no public schools had existed before and to allow men of either race to serve in the legislature and in the Senate and in Congress and to have more uh, people be able to vote and participate in government. And that was violently rejected in the South, led by the, the KKK. And it was successful. The, essentially, the North got tired of it all, and a deal was brokered that essentially resulted in the withdrawal of Union troops. And uh, the Confederate states were able to bring their um, congresspeople and senators back to Washington. And they had to reconcile. And the reconciliation deal was, okay, we're going to forget about Lincoln at Gettysburg. We're going to forget about the moral content of the war, about you know, slavery and the natural rights of humans and, and equality and all the rest, and instead say that, oh, we all, you know, fought honorably, right? Blue and gray, well, we we had our differences, but um, we were all chivalrous, and now, you know, our sons and daughters can marry each other and, and we'll have some wonderful feel-good Hollywood movies about it. And that's essentially what happened. There was a reconciliation of white Americans, um, North and South, um, to allow the country to move forward. And the result was a triumph of the Sims and ethno-national vision in the country. And in the 1910s and 1920s, the federal government was essentially run by um, a white supremacist sort of ethno-national regime you know, with Woodrow Wilson, the first deep Southern president, leading it and resegregating the federal government. So what I'm saying is the first triumph of one of these narratives federation-wide in our country, you know, depressingly and shockingly, was the bad narrative. Uh, and, and for a time, but in all across the federation, that was the dominant sort of ethos and story. And it wasn't overthrown until the 1960s. Right? That's when we finally had a consensus the other way for the first time across the country around our civic national narrative. That's when we became what political scientists would categorize as a liberal democracy. That's amazing that it's within living memory. Well, it's not the 1860s, it's the 1960s when we actually um, become 
uh, a democracy as we might understand it today. We become a democracy then only only then because because prior prior to then um, people were excluded based on race from voting and having basic civic and constitutional rights. You know, a segregated system and uh, you know the poll taxes and everything else to. Uh, prevent large segments of the population in an essentialist way from being able to participate uh, in democracy. So the 1960s, with the end of segregation and the passage of civil rights laws, were a moment of triumph for the Frederick Douglass narrative of America as a nation striving to live up to its ideals of dignity and equality. But the thing about national narratives, says Colin Woodard, is you have to constantly maintain them or they can lose their power. I mean, I'm a Gen Xer, and when I was growing up, the general, uh, you know, understanding was, you know, the in the 1960s, finally the you know white supremacy and all those things had been defeated, and now we're on a we're on a everything isn't totally solved, but we're going in the right direction. You know, we're we're rolling downhill. Hey, we elected an African American president twice. You know, clearly um, we've put our demons aside and can move on. That was the general notion from you know the the 1960s through into relatively recently. And of course, all of that was complacent and entirely wrong. And um, people who um, you know, were on the receiving end of this were telling all the rest of us that for a long time. I mean, the, the danger was we kind of went for the Bancroft version of the narrative, not the Frederick Douglass one. You know, it's not inevitable. You do have to fight for these things uh, constantly. And we haven't achieved the ideals. And so even though uh, what I'm hearing you say is that, you know, it, that, that was a better, it's a better narrative than the ethno-nationalist narrative, but um, it didn't actually serve us all that well to, to, to sort of teach and buy in many quarters of this country this, this, um, th- this simpler sort of like we're on the right path and we've we fought most of the big battles kind of narrative. Yeah, we became complacent. And we sort of just set it aside and we ended up letting a vacuum form where there was no story as to what the country's purpose was. Without that story as to why what we now call the red states and blue states should be in the same country, nobody had a story for that at the same time that there were all kinds of tensions happening. You had 9-11 and then you had the forever wars and then you had the 2008 financial collapse and all of those things um, created you know, major upheavals and major uncertainty and a stage for demagogues to step into that vacuum, that vacuum at the center of you know, who are we as a people and what's our purpose and providing a, you know, a, a, the, the darker and scarier version of our story, that ethno-national story. You know, it's no longer a Anglo-Saxon superiority one, but it's one where clearly there are real Americans and there are categories of people who somehow are not or are betraying the country and that this is a government for a subset of Americans. And that, that idea is now back on the stage in our politics in a way it hadn't for close to half a century. And um, so I'm thinking now about the current... Um, heated debates that are going on about sort of what we should teach kids to be proud of as Americans. How, how can we convince people who believe racism and imperialism are central to America's character and that the founding fathers were, uh, were racist hypocrites? How can we satisfy them and also the people who, who want to be able to feel proud in an America where the founding fathers were inspired, maybe not perfect, but also that God is in the story, right? Yeah, and that's the trick, right? As um, my friend Ted Johnson at New America says, you know, it's about pride and reckoning. And I think that's exactly right. You can tell a story that does both. In fact, it becomes a more powerful story. Our our story is is far from perfect. You know, it's uh, uh, the things that have happened in the American story, our betrayal of the ideals are stupendous, but they're human failings, right? America's problems are homo sapiens problems. But understanding that, being proud of the efforts we've made and the sacrifices and battles people have fought to hold that dream together, to keep it alive, um, are inspiring and genuinely so. And at the same time, you can't, um, hide all of the all of the failures and the times we we backslid. 
but they can be in storytelling purposes. Those are the heroic moments. It's a narrative arc of things look really bad and people heroically and with great sacrifice move things forward. I mean, that's an epic story. And we're talking about telling a story of a nation to itself. You can do the two together. You can recognize the battle we've had as humans and as Americans to do better um, and be proud of the fact that you had a country that even thought of being committed to these ideas and be proud of the, all the sacrifices and battles people have made to do it, um, I just think makes for a more powerful and realistic story. I mean, I'm actually, despite the tenor of all this, I'm actually an optimist. I think that we're going to get out of this and succeed. But the danger is very serious because it's our ideals, those liberal democratic ideals that hold us together. By ending up in a situation where we don't have a good answer for who we are as a people and why we're together, we've brought ourselves to a point where autocracy and authoritarianism and ethno-nationalism is now part of our day-to-day political discourse. But you know, people are waking up to that now, and I think there's an understanding that we don't want to end up there. How important do you think it is that Americans believe that America is the greatest nation on the earth? We certainly see a lot of our politicians, basically every president will talk about, you know, America as this exceptional thing, America first, you know. Do you see that as um, as a unifying message helpful to, to moving us together? Yeah, lots of people do it. Even President Biden does that in some of his democracy speeches. And no, I, I don't think it's helpful. That that um, Bancroftian syndrome um, that we're chosen, that we can do anything we set our minds to do, um, that we're the greatest country, that God chose us, those are not helpful. The fact that it's all uncertain, that nothing is um, preordained, um, means that it's on us. It's on us to protect our democracy, to advance um, the the ideals and the declaration and and make them, <laughs> to achieve them. To think otherwise is to uh, become complacent and therefore um, greatly decrease the chance that we get there and keep moving towards um, those ideas of equality, which are in fact good ones. Colin Woodard, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. And thank you for having me. Colin Woodard is author of Union, The Struggle to Forge the Story of United States Nationhood. And he's director of the Nationhood Lab, which is a project at the Pell Center for International Relations and Public Policy at Salve Regina University in Rhode Island. So where do we learn our national narrative? Well, we get it from political speeches and campaign rallies. And some version of it gets conveyed when our communities celebrate Juneteenth or July 4th or when we recite the Pledge of Allegiance in a public meeting, or sing the national anthem at a sporting event. But it's public schools where the real learning happens, right? And dozens and dozens of bills have been introduced in state legislatures in recent years aimed at this very thing, at shaping the historical narrative that America's kids are learning. I think what's tricky is that those narratives are not history a teacher's take on what we really need kids to be learning about American history. That's next on Top of Mind. I'm Julie Rose. It's important to understand national narratives as stories that we tell to make sense of who we are, rather than stories about what actually happened in the past. Abby Reisman is a professor at the University of Pennsylvania. She trains social studies teachers and designs curricula to make history more engaging for teens. Now, she is not opposed to national narratives. They're powerful and have their place. We just need to be careful about confusing those stories with history. So I was thinking about how I would explain what I mean when I say that those narratives are not history. Um, What if you and I jumped into a time machine today and landed 300 years in the future. And we ran into somebody who said, my gosh, you've traveled from September 2023. What was happening in September 2023? And you would answer, people were really thinking about narratives. And my evidence for that is I did a podcast on narratives in September 2023. And there were, let's say, a lot of threads on Twitter where people were debating narratives. And I would say, my gosh, mid-September 2023, 
What was happening in the United States is the UAW just called the general strike. This is the ascendance of labor after years of after decades of decline. The story from September 2023 is the rise of labor. And I would have evidence to make my claim and you would have evidence to make your claim. And what we deem to be significant about September 2023 is shaped by our perspective of what we think is important. In a way, we would both be right as long as we had evidence to support our claim. And then the person hearing us in 2323 <laughs> would take that in through the lens of what they deem to be significant and what's salient to them in their time. So all of that is history, right? There are an infinite number of things that are happening. How can we possibly capture this moment in the world? So we're always selecting, we're always crafting, we're always sequencing, we're always narrativizing. And the work of the historian is to do that in a way that's that's really rigorous and grounded in evidence and sensitive to the the ways people thought in the past, et cetera. So, so given that, what's the best way to decide which of those narratives to focus on in, in, a, in a textbook <laughs> or in a unit, <laughs> in, a, in an elementary school or a high school or, or, you know, in a curriculum that a state legislature is giving its stamp of approval to, right? I mean, if, if there are infinite number of ways that we could frame that history and emphasize certain perspectives over others or look at certain aspects of life in that moment in time— what would you like to see be the guiding principles for the people deciding this is what's going to go in the textbook and this is what's not? I'll give you my answer. And I'm sure on some level it'll sound naive or far-fetched. But I guess I reject the idea that history should be presented as a single authoritative narrative. I think we're never going to be able to do that. And I don't think there's a... that. I don't think there's, that's just because we're the United States and we have all these different, you know, histories and people and whatever. I think that's just, that's true of any history, right? There's never one authoritative story that's going to stand above all the rest. And I think the challenge then for educators is how do you represent the complexity of history? So what would that look like in a history class? The history classroom, the history teacher has a choice. You either pretend that there is just one narrative and you choose your narrative, right? It doesn't need to be like the dominant one. You know, you pretend that there's one narrative. Or the school board chooses it for you or, or the, the school parents, board chooses parents of the exactly. kids in your class insist upon right? a certain narrative. Right. The counter argument is that when you have a single narrative, it assumes that there's a single perspective and it masks the fact going back to our time travel uh, story, it masks the fact that all narratives are constructed, that there are decisions about who uh, is included, where or how to start the narrative. No matter what that single narrative is, it masks all of the constructedness. The other way is, okay, well, I want them fundamentally to see that history is interpretation that any story about the past is by necessity a slice. It's a slice and a choice and a narrow gaze into one piece of the past that that the storyteller deemed relevant and important. It does not mean it's a lie. It does not mean it's false if there's evidence to back it. But it's going to be an interpretation. So describe what that would look like. I know that you've worked on a um, a project called Reading Like a Historian, and there's a curriculum that you've helped to put together. Walk us through what that that looks like in the classroom, a a typical high school unit on an American history topic. So when I think about curriculum design, there's one huge principle that guides my thinking, which is that kids need to be doing the thinking you have to ask yourself, who is doing the work? Are you doing the work or are the kids doing the work? Secondly, I take into account what I know to be true about learning. That we all enter the classroom with pre-existing schemas that are deeply resistant to change. So a child walks into the classroom, 
already having a sense of how the world works, right? Even about, and having a sense about the past. And that in order for those schemes to change, they need to experience what Piaget called some disequilibrium. They need to have some sort of discomfort, some sort of dissonance, and that allows for schema change. And third, that discussion, that discourse between students is a very effective way to foster that schema, that dissonance, because we're seeing other perspectives and they allow us to experience disequilibrium. So first of all, I pose a question, right? And I like for these to be questions that historians are actually grappling with, just real questions about what happened in the past. So I might say, what happened at the March on Washington? And I might give them the textbooks and this says here, Martin Luther King gave a speech. Could I have a dream? Okay, great. So I guess we're done. And their schema is confirmed, right? Yep, that's it. I gave the right answer and we're done. They say, but wait a minute. And I would hand out, let's say, the program from the March on Washington. And it lists Martin Luther King as like the 16th out of 18 speakers. Suddenly you're like, wait a minute. There were other speakers. Who were they? What did they say? Oh, now let's look at some other resources of the March on Washington. Who organized it? Why do we never hear about these organizers, right? And so we create that disequilibrium right? And suddenly, then we go back, well, now why would the textbook only talk about Martin Luther King? That structure essentially guides what I call the document-based lesson, where you have a central question, you have shared resources that students can examine, you sequence those resources in such a way that initially their incoming schemas are confirmed, and then you do the very technical move that I call mess with their minds, right? You kind of insert something that's going to create some dissonance. And then you have discourse around it. We say, okay, now how would you rewrite the textbook passage? Oh, it's really hard to do that, isn't it? And confusion and complexity is okay? Like that, they can handle that? They absolutely can. And they thrive on it. And I think, I think actually one of the challenges going back to the framing of this entire episode is that I don't think we as, as a society, um, have been prepared to tolerate complexity in the way that we need to today. What do you mean? I think that there are, that the world is complex. And I think that we are constantly encountering, uh, you know, different perspectives and opinions and new views and claims, and especially now with online research. And we need to have students who can, who, whose gut instinct in reaction to that complexity is not to like shut down and grasp onto the simplest, easiest, most accessible story, but to say, okay, wait a minute. Let me, let me hear this out. Let me, let me listen to everything um, and let me reason through it. And let me see if I can kind of arrive at an analysis that, that holds for me. And then let me hear if somebody else has a different interpretation. I think we need to have people who are capable of doing that. And I think the history class is a place to do it. Do you think that it's important that young people in America have a sense of pride and patriotism in, you know, and, and a national story that does that for them. Is any of that a history teacher's job in public school, in high school? I'm skeptical of patriotism as a goal. I don't know that it's a useful, you know, especially today, but probably ever as a, as a kind of curricular goal. I think it's important to instill in students a sense of responsibility for civic participation. I think that's important. I think that if schools churn out kids who do not feel an obligation to one another, I think that would be a failure of schools. Is there any risk, do you think, in highlighting the failures, highlighting the warts in the story of America with young people? No, I don't think so. There are ways to, you know, create frameworks and talk about things in in, uh, ways that are accessible and developmentally appropriate. But the fundamental stories are, kids get it. They get that, that people do bad things and it's hard to hear. But I'll also say that, you know, I have a six year old and he, we were listening to something on the radio recently and he said, what was World War II? And I was like, oh boy, you know, where do I start? And I was talking to my partner about this. And I was like, you know, I, I'm positive I knew about the Holocaust when I was six. I'm positive. I'm positive. I, re- I have a memory. Now, did I understand it? No. 
But did I know that it happened? Yes, I did. My grandparents were survivors. I had to, you know, I knew those stories. The people who are protected from hearing these horrible stories are typically those who have the privilege, the choice of being protected from those stories. So who are we protecting exactly? This isn't a universal decision. Kids can't hear about this. Kids do hear about this. Whose kids are we saying can hear about it and we don't care? And whose kids should be protected and preserved in some kind of state of innocence? I think those are the questions that we're grappling with. What's the payoff if we can effectively teach our young people to be comfortable with the cognitive dissonance, to be okay with having their minds blown and then sort of working through the nuance of it the way you described? What what does that offer us as a, as a country, as a society? I think it offers us two things. I think it offers us the actual possibility of um, democracy, of democratic participation in the sense that we have people with different perspectives, different values, different priorities, um, able and capable and willing to engage with one another um, and recognizing each other's humanity. And I think the second thing, and this is... uh, why I think history can play a role in that is that it grants us, or it has the potential to grant us a set of humility about our own convictions. Not total, you know, not a rejection that I, you, you can still have values. Uh, you can still have beliefs. You can still have convictions about what is true and what is fair and what is good. But you can also say, my gosh, maybe I'm not right about everything. Maybe I have something to learn from talking to somebody who has a different take. And I think that that's the best we can, that that would be an extraordinary, if if, if everyone had that training, if everybody were prepared in schools to think that way, I, I, I would love to live in that world. Abby Reisman is a professor of teacher education at the University of Pennsylvania, and she's a member of the Stanford History Education Group, which is where you can find the history lesson plans she helped create. Just Google reading like a historian. Top of Mind is a BYU radio podcast. Today's episode was produced by James Hoops, Abigail Tolley, and Vanessa Goodman, with help from Samuel Benson and me. Our sound designers are Brandon Lewis and Spencer Hewitt. And be sure to connect with us on social media to continue the conversation. We are at Top of Mind Pod on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok. We'd love to have you leave a review or rate this podcast on whichever app you're using right now. That'll help other people find Top of Mind and join us in becoming better citizens, kinder neighbors, and more effective advocates. I'm Julie Rose. We'll talk soon.